I think that we are all like subtly discouraged from changing and growing actually like by the people around us sometimes unintentionally is just like a, a thing that happens like almost subconsciously. Like when you undertake a project like this, you, you never exactly know like where it's going to go and how you're going to change and what it's going to be. But you know that if you, you know, if you go the distance, like something will be different on the other side. What is up, my fellow freaks? I'm Zach, your host of the Ogzoro podcast. And this time I'm excited to sit down with Eric Jorgensen. Eric is the author of The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, known widely as the Navalmanac. This book collects and curates Naval's wisdom from Twitter podcasts and essays over the past decade. The wisdom of Naval Ravikant, created and edited by Eric Jorgensen, with illustrations by Jack Butcher and forward by Tim Ferriss. The book is free to read on Navalmanac.com. Eric also has over 28,000 followers on Twitter, where he tweets about leverage, startups, sandwiches, and bullshit. His bullshit stank so bad on Twitter that I had no choice but to give him a vigorous follow. Although Eric has recorded many conversations about Naval Ravikant, the Navalmanac, and how Naval thinks, this is not a Naval Ravikant podcast. This is an Eric Jorgensen podcast. And my goal was to get some insight into how Eric thinks, talk a bit about Naval, and have some fun. On this episode, Eric discusses the little Naval on his shoulder, seeking approval of your heroes, the Babaverse, the mental models of weightlifting, the perfect sandwich, and more. If the Auxoro podcast has made your life better in some small way, it would mean a lot to us. If you could tell a friend, rate us, leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, this helps us appear higher in searches, which means more people can discover the show. You can also go to patreon.com slash Auxoro, where for five bucks a month, the price of a bougie cup of coffee, you get bonus episodes and early releases of the podcast. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Eric Jorgensen. Thanks again for uh, for hopping on the the podcast and uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm excited to to talk to you today, and we have a we have a lot to get into, so I'm looking forward to it. Yes, we do. It's going to be fun. So I thought a good place to start would be Clubhouse because I was going through your Twitter to prepare for this interview, and I saw that you had recently tweeted yesterday. Uh, about the app Clubhouse, which I actually downloaded a couple weeks ago and then recently got invited to it because it's exclusive invite only. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it. What do you think of the platform? First impressions, things like that, just in the moment. What did what did you think when you were going through it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very novel and interesting. It's like refreshing to see that even though we think social media has been like static and hard to innovate in, you know, we see new stuff come around that I think technologically still would have been possible a few years ago. And I think that's an interesting place to start. I think, I mean, huge kudos to the clubhouse team because it's not easy to like scale something this quick, this hot. Yeah. And they were, you know, they had a lot of buzz like 
back in April and just had to put a ton of work in while people were busy copying their app and their idea and launching competitors and like Twitter's coming out with stuff. And like, it's just, it's really hard, I think, to keep focus and discipline on it, like making a really well-crafted product, which I think Clubhouse is for certainly how old they are. And then just like keep that going until they opened up the invite stream just the last month or two. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird because every time a new social media app gets released, especially as someone who's regularly releasing podcasts, I always feel like I have to be on the next new thing, whether it's Clubhouse or IG Reels or TikTok or whatever. And when I was going through it, I actually really enjoyed the whole setup because there's no video on the app. You're going into these these clubhouses, these rooms and hearing people speak. And you can raise your hand and talk to someone who's super well-known. It, it could be a, a super famous person, like an athlete or something like that. Or it could be someone who's a smaller creator. And so I love that dynamic of... It, it seems like kind of this almost equalizing of voices where you can just start your own thing. And if, if people feel like listening to you, almost like podcasts, you can start your own chat or just raise your hand and and talk to someone you're interested in. Yeah, it is a cool, it's all a frictionless, you know, bespoke one time only podcast. It is a very interesting evolution. I'm curious to see where it goes, you know, where, where it goes and where it stabilizes. Like, what are the things that people use it for in the future? You know, does it become like a three or four person phone call? Is it, is it more of like a small group, group chat use case? Or is it better actually that it's like, large-scale broadcast stuff is it something in the middle like i think all of that is stuff that you know each social network and each medium has like its own kind of point of stasis for those and its own like patterns that it settles into and this is just so new that we don't exactly know what that's going to look like yet and it's exciting have you been part of any exciting conversations on clubhouse yet because i actually haven't listened to a formal chat i've dug around on the app but i haven't actually sat in on on someone speaking yet a lot of the conversations feel exciting because they're kind of like just disappearing, you know, like yeah, the quality does not seem, it's hard to beat the quality of a well-curated, like well-edited podcast, right? Like it is mm-hmm. not going to be better necessarily, but it's different and it's special in that it's kind of expiring quickly and that you never know where it's going to go. So I've heard some super, um, some very like interesting things and, you know, it's cool to hear Mark Andreessen and like, I think the surprise ones are the best. Like, you know, Scooter Braun, like Justin Bieber's managers, like pops into one randomly or, you know, Oprah or whatever. Yeah. You're just kind of like, oh, holy smokes. Like, I wasn't ready for that. And it's like, it's thrilling. Like, it's exciting to see it come up. But it's also like, it's rarely the best version of that person. But it is it's fresh and exciting. I like how you can invite people into the chat that may or may not be in the same field as you. I was listening to... Tim Dillon talk on his podcast. He's a, a stand-up comedian and he was super into the the whole thing that just happened with Wall Street bets and is still happening with Robin Hood and GameStop, AMC, all that stuff. And he was invited in on this investing chat as a stand-up comedian and he was dropping jokes every four or five minutes. At least that's what he said because he's like, my job is to be funny. So I have to make people laugh somehow. But at the same time, it's this guy whose job is to make people laugh. And then he's also super deep into this whole seems like a shift in investing, maybe something at the start. And for it to be on an app like Clubhouse, 
where you would think, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to take this seriously. This is like maybe a kid's app or something, but like these super deep intellectual conversations are happening with people across silos, like across industries is cool. Yeah. I think you're going to see like crazy stuff like that and like just things that you would never have choreographed, but they just kind of happen organically. And that's super fun. And you're just going to see some super weird stuff. I saw, I got a push notification the other day, or maybe I saw a screenshot on Twitter. There's like, this woman was like live clubhousing her. She was like, I'm in labor and I'm having contractions and I'm about to give birth. Like, so I'm going live on clubhouse and you're like, God damn. We're going to see some weird stuff for sure. I hope that worked out for her. Maybe uh, <laughs> T- Tim Dillon can jump on to the next labor clubhouse stream so he can provide yes. some comedic commentary. Yeah. I, I didn't listen to the stream, but I can't imagine that a comedian <laughs> would not have helped in some way. So I wanted to get into the almanac of Naval Ravikant, which is right here. I'm going to try to point it at the right camera because I have the one on my <laughs> laptop also. For people who may not be familiar with the almanac of Naval Ravikant and the process behind writing the book and what got you into Naval in the first place, would you be able to explain who is Naval to you? Who was your entrance? uh, What was your entrance to Naval and what made you want to spend the last three years of your life curating and, and compiling this resource that is the Naval almanac? Yeah. Naval, never heard of him. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, th- I think I heard about Naval first back in like 2011 and I was, I was first, I was like in school and really wanted to get into the startup world and was trying to figure out how to kind of break into the, the Valley and move to San Francisco and get into the startup culture. And, uh, somebody told me, you know, go read all of Paul Graham and go read all of Venture Hacks, which was written by Nivy and Naval. Is a great blog still up. There's a bunch of great stuff. They, they were blogging about kind of like the game theory of venture capital, you know, how to raise money mm-hmm. and what, what different terms mean and breaking down term sheets and, you know, how they were building their company, which turned into, turned into Angelus. I just saw that I, I really enjoyed that. And I followed Naval, you know, for the last 10 years as kind of grown from that. And so at first it was a lot of like startup building and then it was a lot of startup investing and then kind of turned into more like, principles and in the past few years have become more like philosophical. Definitely. I mean, a lot of stuff about crypto and the future of education. So, you know, each sort of like sedimentary layer that Naval has like put out over the last decade of mm-hmm. like things he's gotten interested in um, have been interesting to me and I've kind of followed along on. And then a few years ago, he did a podcast with Shane Parrish on the knowledge project that I thought was just an awesome episode. And I learned a ton from it. I had listened to it a few times. I sent it to people and it just struck me that like Naval had created so much wisdom and so much value on these really ephemeral platforms. You know, they were in podcasts, they were in Twitter and they were kind of like, they're not super searchable. They're not super accessible. They're a a little bit going to be lost to time if they don't become a more permanent format, like a book, you know, something that's been around for thousands of years that people know Mm -hmm. how to buy and gift and read and that everybody kind of knows what to do with a gift or with a book. And regardless of your like, what your media consumption habits are. Like most people pick up a book every now and then. So I, re- I wanted to just kind of help this information, this wisdom, make it to a new new medium. And so that was just an idea that I kind of put out into the universe. And by sharing it on my Twitter and a whole thousands of people were like, yes, please, please do that. We want that. And so I got to work. And you know, a few years later, we got a published book out of it. And here we are. 
it seems like for you to dedicate three years of your life to going through transcripts and different interviews, podcasts, over 20,000 tweets, you would have to see somewhat of a reflection in yourself in that person to be able to do that. Because for me, a lot of the, the projects I'm most passionate about, whether it's with something or someone, it's, it's hard to dedicate a lot of time to that thing unless I see you know, something of myself that I either am or I want to be. Because there are a lot of investors out there. There are a lot of smart people. For you, what was it that you may have seen in Evol that made you think of something in yourself or you know, just kind of like spark that interest at a deeper level beyond all the other people out there who are also smart and great investors, what was it to you that made you want to get into Naval at that deep level? I think Naval for me brings together and embodies like a few different interests for me that are like, it's just hard to see them come together. And so, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, very like kind of fundamental business education, you know, like small business house, grew up reading, you know, Munger and Buffett and like Poor Charlie's Almanac is one of my favorite books. And I love reading about and learning, you know, mental models and stuff like that. But I'm also very into like, you know, I've been reading sci-fi since I was a kid and like wanted to get into startups and love thinking about and living in the future. And, you know, I'd rather kind of think about where technology is going than optimize like an insurance business. Um, And so Naval (laughs) kind of like brings together some of the like, like big fundamental, like cross-disciplinary thinking that I really appreciate about like Charlie Munger and applies it to startups and technology and, you know, futurism and education and is not so, especially the past few years has, has become like more philosophical and more kind of like, um, most well-rounded, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is not just like a shallow kind of take on like, here's how you, you know, solve this problem or here's how you get rich or here's the, like the most efficient mm-hmm. way to make money. It's not like hustle porn kind of stuff. It's very like, let's look at the long arc of history and the long arc of technology and understand how to like live at the frontier and change and improve the human condition and and make money doing it because you know capitalism's our system and it's a beautiful thing but like you know no, nothing is beyond questioning or stepping back from or taking apart and of all does a great job of like poking at all that stuff and having a fun time doing it i think one of the things i wanted to ask you i'm laughing because we had a we had a technical difficulty and we are back now one of the things that i wanted to ask you is it goes off a quote that you mentioned in a previous interview. And it was a quote by Peter Kaufman. And I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember uh, the exact quote, but it was, if you saw a child at seven and they didn't change between the ages of, of seven and 10, that would be tragic. But if you saw someone that was 27 and didn't change until they were 30, nothing would be wrong. That's just like a normal thing in society. So I was wondering for you, how have you changed in the past three years writing this book the most? And, and what, what are the ways that you think you've changed the most uh, writing the Navalmanac? It's a good question. And I, I like that quote a lot. I think that we are all like subtly discouraged from changing and growing actually, like by the people around us sometimes um, mm-hmm. unintentionally is just like a, a thing that happens like almost subconsciously. And so like when you undertake a project like this, you you never exactly know like where it's going to go and how you're going to change and 
what it's going to be. But you know that if you, you know, if you go the distance, like something will be different on the other side. And I think there's something inherently like valuable in overcoming a challenge or a goal, especially like over a long term thing like that, you know, whether it's you want to literally go climb a mountain or you want to accomplish some physical feat, you want to, you know, squat 400 pounds or something like whatever a challenge is, as long as it takes like somewhere north of a thousand hours and at least a year to accomplish, like that's you are different on the other side of that challenge. And so there's certainly like all of the things that I learned doing this like giant conceptual jigsaw puzzle and like putting so much of my attention and energy into Naval's learnings and lessons. And I feel like I can now like have a pretty fluent conversation with with his principles and like my mental model of what he would think about things, which is a super interesting and valuable thing. But I also think that there's like, you know, I'm just excited and gratified at finishing to what I think is like a high bar of quality, a project that I worked on for, you know, for many years. Just like I'm sure you're proud of, you know, having put out so many podcast episodes and like the growth of of an audience and things like that. It's very gratifying. And there's like intangibles that are you gained from that, no matter what the project is. Can you talk about a little bit of that Naval on your shoulder? You mentioned like having the the mindset of Naval ingrained into you because it seems like having someone on your shoulder would be kind of making, uh, not making decisions for you, but, but having someone so deeply ingrained in your thought process, like Naval having done research on him and, and read so many of his words and listened to so many of his interviews over the past three years, it, it seems like that would come into your decision-making on a, a daily basis. Are, are there any sort of specific instances where you may have acted one way or done something and you consulted those principles, you consulted that little Naval and, and you sensed that maybe you should go in another direction or, or you should explore something else? I mean, there's tens of examples for sure. Like it, it's been a lot and I'm almost like, there's some that feel like consulting the principles and there's some that's just like, those are now my principles and I feel like, like almost guilty at how I've like subsumed them into my own like operating system. Why do you feel guilty about it? I think there's a sense of like, we could, if we wanted to properly attribute like the source of every thought or quote or idea that we had, like we could just be quoting the place that we found the ideas all the time. And part of me is like, is very aware that everything that I've learned, I've learned from, you know, my parents or Naval or Charlie Munger or whatever. But it's also like obnoxious to attribute the source of every, like every thought that you have to like the book or whatever that you read. To have like vocal, vocal footnotes to, to everything that you say. I, I would do the same thing. I feel like everything that I say is if I went back to the root of where that idea or thought came from, it's unoriginal because it's from someone else. And so even the ideas that I think are original, if I dug back far enough, I would find someone else, you know, maybe 10 or 20 or hundred years ago, thousand years ago that thought the same thing and yeah. implanted it somehow through, and maybe <laughs> it like, maybe it went through hundreds of other people's content and I read it from someone else and I attributed it to that person. But in reality, it came from the people before him. So or her. So yeah, it's it's kind of like a yeah. clusterfuck of <laughs> unoriginal slash original thoughts of people wanting to take credit slash not taking credit slash feeling guilty about it. So I, I don't know how to feel about it either. 
Yeah, it's this this paradox of like, you know, it, it is really easy to string together like a completely unique sentence. You know, like we, we say unique things for the first time all the time. But over the long arc of history and like all of these different, like there's so little that's actually new fundamentally. You know, you don't, you never want to like take credit for other people's insights and work and effort, but you're also like everything came from somebody else eventually, even for all of those people, right? Like we're all just kind of information processing machines that we're trying to kind of do our best to like understand it for ourselves and help the people around us. And that's just like the, the form that it takes. Going back to the, the Naval metaphor, the, the mini, mini Naval on your mm-hmm. shoulder, do you ever feel like there are instances where that's a negative? And I've actually been thinking about this a, a lot recently. I recorded a small podcast on it on another podcast that I host where I mentioned before, I kind of riff on these 10 to 15 minute segments of certain subjects. And I called it Stop Seeking the Approval of Your Heroes because I feel like for some of the people that have been a, an evolve in some sense to me, like Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan, where I have literally hundreds of thousands of hours of these guys in my ear. When you yeah. first start something like podcasting, you're basically copying. Like I'm listening, how does Tim Ferriss do an intro or what are the, some of the questions he uses? Same thing, Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman, whoever, insert hero to you in that situation. <laughs> and recently I've felt like so in some of the things I'm doing, it's because I'm seeking that person's approval that I've never met. I've never met Tim Ferriss, never met Joe Rogan. Um, I've heard you talk about that you haven't met Naval, at least the last time that uh, you spoke on a, a podcast, which I think was a few weeks ago. Is that ever a negative for you where it the inspiration and the absorption of knowledge turns into almost seeking approval, like a need for approval in a sense where it's stopping you from being who you are in the moment. Like maybe Naval wouldn't act this way, but Eric Jorgensen would. Naval is a, is an interesting one because I kind of like, I kind of know that he doesn't give a shit what I do. Like (laughs) I definitely cared about what he thought about this project, but I don't think that like, I don't have a sense that I'd like want his approval of like me or what I'm doing as a person. Like I, I guess, and I don't think I'm sure that he would discourage that at like pattern of behavior with between anybody. I don't feel like burdened by that. I do think that like, we have to be aware that anybody that we look up to or learn from is, is like fundamentally different from us in a ton of ways that like we, we probably can't appreciate and that their lived experience and set of talents and interests and stuff is different enough that you know, we have to know where to learn from them and, and when to trust our instincts or our sort of given gifts and paths and challenges, right? Like, you know, you can learn a lot from Joe Rogan, you can learn a lot from Tim Ferriss, but like you, you have, there's going to be a limit to how far you can get imitating and, and finding your own voice and um, leaning into your own interests is, is like where you like break out to that next level. I think once you've like mastered what they have to teach. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the first two years when I was podcasting, which it's about two, two and a half years, the, the copying and imitating Mm -hmm. is is super useful because I don't know what, I don't know what it, what it uh, feels like to have a good podcast come out of my mouth until I actually, you know, say some of the questions that inspire me from other people or record an intro and look at how people are 
doing it and listening to to all those things. And then I feel like you hit a point where it's like, like you were talking about, where you need to go beyond the imitation and those foundations will always be there. You can always go back and look at someone's mm-hmm. catalog. If you ever lose sight of where you are, you want to revisit those foundations. But then there comes a point where it's almost like a diminishing returns where you constantly checking up on those foundations will stop you from taking a risk and doing something that maybe is not completely original, but it's different from the people that inspired you and maybe mixing a bunch of things together and trying something new rather than going back to those sources for some sense of security. And and the more sources you, you have, the more influences you have, like you tend to, that's almost a proxy for originality. And the farther, the more disparate sources they are too. Like you start to really, I was reading a book about uh, Marrakesh, which is a very strange segue, but like some of the greatest designers and artists of their eras have like moved from Europe to Marrakesh or at least spent enough time there that they just had this wildly different influence and like backdrop from this kind of like old world, like completely different culture that was only like, you know, an hour and a half flight away. But to, to like the people, their, their customers, their clients, you know, their audience, that influence gave them this huge differentiation this kind of like a mystique almost. Um, and it feels like, you know, a powerful, disparate kind of unique source or influence is just such an advantage and such a, you know, a new combination of existing things can be, can be worth a lot. So these people were going to Marrakesh for things that seemed unrelated and then taking those inspirations and somehow incorporating them into their work, like the Marrakesh aesthetic somehow. Yves Saint Laurent is like the most famous example. And, you know, once he had been there once, he said like, this city taught me color. And he, he, every summer he would like live in Marrakesh. And that was like when he designed his, you know, new collection or whatever. I'm not an expert in fashion. I don't know a lot about this. I just like, this is, I'm one article deep. I mean, you are, you are wearing the, uh, this, you are wearing the, the solid black tee. It looks like, so that goes with anything. (laughs) So that's, that's pretty fashionable. That's pretty, uh, fashionably insightful on your part. Yeah. This is the only decision I have to make. You could be wearing any color pants and all I know is that it will go with the black. My, (laughs) my, my fashion aesthetic is Silicon Valley, which is like, it, wrong. It is either default or wrong. Like those are my only two options. So uh, I try to just mm-hmm. go with default. I thought that was a really interesting story and talking like him talking about how much, how different his style was just because of that one kind of unique influence. Is there anything that's like that for you? Like your Marrakesh <laughs> in, in a sense, like, so, like some, cause you do a lot of things in startups and you, and you do, you do a lot of blogging, you you work for Zarly, which is, it seems like it's uh, kind of like home projects, like connecting people with others who can help build their homes and then take care of these tasks. Is there anything kind of like outside of that that inspires you and the work that you do that seems unrelated, but you've, you've taken something from it and incorporated it into what you do? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a wide... I mean, it depends on the lens in which you look, right? Like I, I really like... I'm much more of a generalist than a specialist. And I really like to read broadly and pull in a lot of different sources from all across, you know, different disciplines, different points in history, different, you know, hopefully different cultures, even in each of those, it it kind of depends. You're 
point of entry is different from like the point of originality. And like, there's, there's a novel piece to everyone, no matter where they're looking in. But I think like, you know, all great stories kind of start in a familiar place and take you through an unknown place and deliver you back to an original place. And so I think there's something to that in storytelling. I think there's something to that in, in business and business model creation and products even is that like, you know, a good product experience starts you with something you're familiar with. It takes you somewhere you've never been and it leaves you somewhere familiar. And so I think there's, you know, that's like a, that is a product insight that can come from storytelling. It can come from literature. It can come from, you know, sci-fi, like wherever you want to find that lesson, you can apply it in somewhere else. And it's on the one hand, like a little generalized and you have to do the work to close the gap between a general rule and a particular context that you're familiar with. But I think it's a fundamental enough insight that it can be true anywhere that people know enough about their context to be able to apply it. Martial arts seems like a great way to apply generalism, especially mixed martial arts and and things like UFC. I'm reading a book right now by George St. Pierre, who's a mixed martial arts champion, UFC champion, like one of the best fighters ever to live. And he talks about fighting in a generalistic sense where he brings in these guys that can kick his ass in Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, Sambo, whatever it is, and in these separate specialties. But the reason he's the champ is that he can put it all together. And when you're fighting in a mixed martial arts fight, when all those things are allowed, he will kick their ass because even though they're the experts in Muay Thai, he will take you down and, and eliminate that from your arsenal. Or if someone's better at wrestling than him, he'll, he might keep you on your feet and try to box you. And so that's really, uh, made me think about things from more of a a general sense, especially creatively and and podcasting and got into Muay Thai a little bit during quarantine. And yeah, it's crazy. Like how, how many different styles can come together and kind of like start to blend. You're almost like doing math with your body a little bit. So that's something that's been an inspiration for me. That's, I would never have thought would have affected my podcasting. And now I've definitely feel myself becoming interested in different types of people to talk to. And and maybe it has something to do with getting into martial arts where it's like all this shit coming together into one thing. It was interesting to watch like UFC and MMA like evolve over the last 15 years or so. Like I remember UFC started as like, well, let's see which martial art is like the strictly dominant form and like bring yeah. in each individual expert and see like, can a Muay Thai black belt like kick the ass of a world cha- world champion like wrestler? That was kind of where it started. Nobody, there, there was no MMA. There was just like specialists in each breed that they brought in to like all duke it out. And it was so interesting to see the style change. And like, they all just have kind of like melded together into like this new form, which we now like know and watch MMA. And it's almost like there's a few different styles, but it's not nearly as stark as it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. The, the Wild West Yeah, days. especially some of the earlier fights. Yeah, yeah w- with uh, no weight classes, yeah. you have a 165-pound jiu-jitsu guy going against a 230-pound guy. He's more of like a stand-up striker. And I've seen some of those old videos where you, you see this guy. And I know Gracie is a huge name. I'm still kind of going through the, the whole jiu-jitsu world and getting more familiar with it. But I know those guys uh, in the Gracie family kind of popularized Brazilian jiu-jitsu and were taking down these dudes that were absolutely massive using 
physical leverage, mm-hmm. like basically cranking their body parts, putting them into different positions. And you would see that person and just be like, oh, that's a normal 165 pound guy walking down the street that could kill you and kill another guy who's 300 pounds because he knows how to align his bone structure in the right way to, to choke you out or break your arm or something like that. Yeah. I think that was, that was super cool. And, and I mean, I remember seeing Forrest Griffin, like get in an arm bar and refuse to tap and get his arm broken and win the fight with one arm after like, I mean, it it was just so much more like raw and wild and insane. But yeah, the the Gracie's were like an incredible story that came out of that. And Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I think is like the foundation of MMA or at least a lot of the groundwork, but it's cool. Like, I mean, judo and boxing and all this stuff come together. It's have you ever gotten into anything in that realm, uh, like training or I did a, even? I did a few months of judo, which is like really dumb because I'm enormous. And like the odds that I ever fight anybody smaller than, or bigger than me are like pretty low. But I, I never... How tall are you? I was 6'6". Six, six. Goddamn. Yeah. 6'6", six, six, judo. I'm trying to... It's pretty uh, hard to like hip throw somebody who's like 5'8 when you're 6'6". Six, six, and, mm-hmm. and there's like... <laughs> so judo, it's an advantage if you're smaller? Yeah. Okay. Or is it like judo is designed for a smaller person to like if using all the same kind of leverage points, right? Like how do you get people off balance? How do you like move their center of gravity, leg sweeps, like that kind of stuff is all, um, and, and a lot of like different groundwork. One of the interviews that I was listening to, uh, to get ready for, uh, to get ready to talk with you was, I think it was something with FinTech. I'm, I'm blanking out, but he was a guy that you mentioned was your really good friend, yeah, Zach. Zach Pettit. Yeah, the same name. Yeah, for fintech's sake, is his his podcast. And you said, a, yeah, for fintech's sake, shout out to that podcast. I, I really enjoyed that conversation. That was, that was my favorite conversation with you leading up to this interview. I listened to three or four going in and out, and the, I listened to the entirety of this conversation. And it, it was probably because you guys were. Uh, really good friends, the the dynamic between the both of you. And you mentioned that weightlifting had given you new mental models. And I feel in a similar way uh, with weightlifting because I grew up playing baseball, played in high school and college and had basically this framework of getting stronger built into me. So I wanted to ask for you what effect has weightlifting had on your life, whether it's purely physical or it's leaked over into other aspects? What, what has it meant for you to, to build new mental models through weightlifting? Two kind of like main like fitness and athletic chapters in my life. Uh, and one was a road crew in, in high school. And for the last, uh, for basically two years um, with Zach, like did a lot of lifting. And it's just so, it is so helpful to see and feel like physical versions of, of like the compounding and the long-term effort and the like daily, the results of the daily grind. And so I think like, you know, mm-hmm. I can, I can talk about some of the mental models. Like that's the kind of the, the big picture of it. I followed a pretty like bodybuilding kind of protocol when I was doing it. And so it was like, it was workouts, it was diet, it was scale, you know, like weighing every, every food and like being precise to the calorie and to the, you know, down to the almond of like what you were eating, yeah. <laughs> which is something I had never done before. And like learning the benefits of like true precision there is, is kind of key. 
the benefits of just like recording every set, recording every meal, what it feels like to work in a system where there just isn't room for error. When you measure and track and adhere to all of the like pre-decided inputs and outputs, you can't mess it up. And there's no room for willpower. There's no room for like confusion or mistakes or whatever. There is just like, you turn yourself into a computer, you write a program, you know, here's your program, here's your workout, here's your diet, here's your sleep, here's your water, here's your vitamins, like do this. And then like you either did it or you didn't do it. And like, I'm not a person who's going to not do it if I decided that I'm going to do it. And then once you're doing it, you're like, oh, holy shit, this works. Like, I'm definitely going to keep doing this. At that level, it's a ton of time and it's a ton of work and it has to be like the most important thing that you're doing. But I like the chapter where you do that, like where it is the most important thing in your life and you do see the results that come from it makes you understand all the levers really. And like, you don't, you know, I no longer like weigh every meal and record everything, but I do 80% of what I did there, like just kind of by habit and momentum now. And it's put me in a completely different place than where I was before. So I think there's something about like, feel like, understand where your limit is, like know what it's like to work at your absolute capacity and put something as your absolute number one priority in life for a while and see how much you learn and how, where your new default is after that, knowing that you can't do that forever, but do it for three months, do it for six months and like, see how that feels. It's crazy how much lifting weights has taught me about creating content because weightlifting weightlifting side by side with trying to develop velocity as a pitcher playing baseball, I would see, okay, if I do all the things like you were saying, you know, on this list, check, 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 whether you feel like you, whether you feel like you wanted to do it that day or whether you could not be bothered by the weight room. If you do this, you will see improvements and then seeing that over a long period of time and then pairing that with velocity and and seeing that, okay, if I get stronger, my velocity is also going to go up. So not only am I just lifting weights because I want to look better and get stronger and uh, be sexier or whatever your, whatever your goals are, I'm also going to make myself better as a, as a baseball player. And that was really the first skill or activity in my life where I saw, okay, you can put in these inputs into what you're doing keep adjusting those inputs depending on what's working for you, what's not working for you, going stronger certain weeks, recovering other weeks. And that all applies to something like writing a book. I, I assume you, you were able to apply some of those fundamentals to writing books. And, and I feel the same way in podcasting and recording audio in, in that sense. I feel like sticking to those inputs will you have no choice but to see long-term improvements. And then there are also kind of those valleys where you know you have to back off a little bit because you're feeling burnt out. And and if you want to do something for 10 years, this is not the way to do it. So I mean, maybe I need to back off a little bit so I can keep doing it long-term and keep myself excited about it. Okay, now maybe I need to... I'm done with that recovery period. That was like a light deloading week. Now I need to get back into it. And this is where I need to you know put up some fucking numbers and actually, you know, this is, this is like a strength week. This is like a max week, or this is kind of a maintenance week, or this is a rest week. Like to see how that all applies to content in in some sense is is really cool looking back on my baseball career. And, and it sounds like for you, it's also been a source of input output recognition. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent, like, you know, this is a little bit like we're, we were talking about before, like there, there are 
some lessons that like once you learn, you can apply it anywhere, anywhere in your life, right? Like the ideas of showing up every day and like doing today's work today. The idea that like whatever you do, you got to be willing to do it for a long time. And like that's where the results are going to come from is like commitment over over a long period of time and changing your expectations so that like, you know, you expect to get a six pack in a week. Like it's not going to happen. You know, the, the yeah. saying in startups is like you overestimate what you can do in a year and you underestimate what you can do in 10 years. You know, you look at a company like Airbnb that's actually like 11 or 12 years old. That is not a long time to build a huge company, mm-hmm. uh, but you can't do it in a year. And I think it's the same thing with, with fitness. You know, people like expect to see, to be shredded in a month and like, you're probably not going to be, but like you can be in like 10 months and that's not a long yeah. time either. Like look, when you look back at the end of that 10 months, it's going to feel like it went by instantaneously. It might feel long while you're doing it and learning new habits and like struggling through some workouts, but like also you'll be, you know, proud of your daily progress. And that's, that's all you got to do is like do your day's work that day. There's so much comparison to other people's fitness journeys you you may see you may look in the mirror and see yourself after working out for three months and you see someone else on instagram or something or youtube and you think i'm not nearly as shredded as this person or whatever i've been doing this for three months what's going on or and then you don't realize that that person's been in the gym for five years or or 10 years or maybe they you know they they looked like that when they were in high school because they had freak genetics and yeah it's like uh focusing on yourself and just getting to that next workout or sometimes even that next set or rep literally sometimes where like I've been there where you have a heavy day for squats or something and you have eight sets of three and somewhere in the middle of the fifth set you're like this third one is not getting up the next set maybe even the second one you literally have to like reset for each Rep. Every rep feels yeah, like it's set. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's sometimes it's just fucking hard, but it, it teaches you a lot of shit. Yeah. And, you know, in 30 minutes, you'll be done and feel great. Yeah. You know, you never, you never regret a workout. I've never, yeah, I've never regretted a workout. I, I've, it's funny. I was actually, uh, I was watching this video on, Jeff Bezos talking about his regret minimization framework that he used to decide whether he was going to leave his Wall Street job and start Amazon or stay and take his yearly bonus and, you know, maybe put it off. And he used the term regret minimization, which was kind of just seemed like a fancy way to say, what am I going to least likely to regret in 50 years? And he was talking about, uh, kind of like projecting yourself forward and saying, what am I least likely to regret leaving my corporate job and missing out on a bonus or not starting this online bookstore that no one thinks is a billion dollar idea. Like he, and he probably didn't even think that at the time it was just, uh, it was an online bookstore and he was exploring the internet back in 1996 And, and going back to the like, I've never regretted a a workout. I've started to think more in terms of that framework for bigger decisions. What what thing am I going to least likely to regret? And it it even works on the the day-to-day basis. Like, okay, I know I've never regretted a workout in my day-to-day life. I've never regretted calling a friend. I've never regretted going for a walk without my phone. Like, even though I don't feel like doing it before, I know when it's done, 
evidence shows that I'm going to be in a better off place after I finish it. So I might as well just do it. It's surprisingly hard to remember in the moment sometimes. But yeah, it's a good, it's a good way to do it. Why do you love the, the Bobaverse? Because I, I know nothing about the Bobaverse. I was looking around online today and it sounds like a really interesting series. And you mentioned yeah. it. So I, so I wanted to know for you, what fascinates you about, well, first, what is it for, for someone who's yeah. never heard of the Bobaverse and, and why does it fascinate you? Yeah, this is, uh, I was not ready for that question, um, but I'm Neither very was excited I. to talk about it. <laughs> I love <laughs> Okay, so it's basically, this is a series of, I don't know, I think there's at least two or three books now. And the first one, like the setup that happens in the first like two chapters is there's like a this startup billionaire who signs a agreement with a cryo company. So like if he dies, his body will be preserved. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he's like walking out of the cryo clinic, he gets like hit by a bus. And basically his he wakes up like 150 years later in like his brain has been uploaded into a computer and then something is like going terribly wrong on earth. And, uh, that computer is like shot off. That satellite is like shot off into space with supposedly all of the like equipment that it needs to become a self-replicating like probe in space. And so he can like build his own fuel and build his own additional ships and clone himself. And it's, it's kind of like the thought experiment of the von Neumann probe, like brought to life in basically like a comedy a lighthearted like comedy sci-fi setting mm-hmm. and so like uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy is one of my favorite books and like i i just love like a hilarious lighthearted sci-fi is like right in my wheelhouse um and yeah. the book reads like a movie and it's just kind of a fun interesting version of a thought experiment that is like it's fun to read it's it's it makes you curious it makes you think it kind of breaks your frame of like just being a human on a planet and going about your daily life. So this, this guy, he gets in an accident and he finds himself uploaded into, it's like a supercomputer type thing. Yeah. It'd be like, um, you know, if instead of your body, you know, you're now a consciousness in charge of, I mean, you can think of it almost like a, like a real time strategy game, right? Like you mm-hmm. have like, you have resources and you have skills and you have talents and you have to like go do an asteroid and find like how to make yourself more fuel and then have to go and like figure out what to do and make more of yourself and like make spare parts for yourself. And you can like zoom around the universe and like find sentient species and then like figure out how to interact with them. And if you're going to, and like help, it's a very interesting, if you like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or if you like XKCD or some of that kind of stuff, like you'll probably be into this, into this book series. What do you feel like you get out of sci-fi? Because, you know, selfishly, I I, I want to read and watch more sci-fi. I've never been into science fiction, really, from just like a broad standpoint. For whatever reason, I haven't gravitated towards it. For you, what do you... You mentioned thought experiments. What do you kind of get out of reading about things that may not be of this universe, but of the Bobaverse? I don't think like uh, sci-fi is inherently virtuous. Like I don't, if you're not inherently gravitated towards it or interested in it, like there's no, there's no should about it. I just have always liked it. I think Ender's Game was like one of my first kind of big influences there and like just went down that rabbit hole and, you know, more and more of them have been interesting and influential. 
somebody, I don't know who to attribute this quote to, but like science fiction is the the proving ground of like the why of technology. Mm -hmm. You can start to think about how we would interact with something and how the problems, what problems a technology would solve or things like that, but like well before the technology can exist. And sometimes sci-fi can almost like will a technology into existence by making a great case for it. And so I think like an interesting example of this is, is Ready Player One. So like Ready Player One mm-hmm. kind of fits the same category, like lighthearted, like easy to read sci-fi, near future sci-fi about virtual reality, a version of humanity that basically lives its entire awake life in virtual reality. And I think that book will have a huge influence on what gets built and how mm-hmm. and in VR and how quickly it gets built in VR. And I think that's a super, it's almost like intellectual headwaters of a lot of technologists and you know the ipad was talked about in star wars or in star trek and like there's just so much stuff that we see it's almost like concept art for for technologists it's fun and interesting to live in that kind of like near that line between possibility and reality and then especially as you get to start to watch some of the technologies that you like read about in a fictional setting like turn into reality like that's super super cool yeah it's like the the chicken and the egg of of sci-fi, what comes first? Does the sci-fi author write about it? And then a kid reads that and wants a technology to exist so badly that he grows up and creates it? Or does that person create it and then the author writes about it, like willing something into existence? That's that's crazy. It's a story of Oculus Rift, right? Like Lucky Palmer grew up reading in Red Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson and was like, oh shit, I want that. Like, I think that can exist. Like, let me push on it. And like bought some components and started building them in a trailer in his parents' front yard and like sold it to Facebook. And now we got Oculus and like, they're badass. It's a crazy. The guy who invented Oculus read about it first. And then based off of that, he started fucking around and and made Oculus eventually. I'm sure that's a super general way to putting it. Yeah. I mean, that's, but that's more that's or how, less. That's crazy. Yeah. There's a great book about Oculus. I can't remember the title of off the top of my head. Let me see if I can Google it. Uh, yeah, go ahead. It is a wild story. The like founding of it. The history of the future is what it's called. History of the future. The history of the future. Yeah. It's about, the, you know, Palmer Lucky and him building the first Oculus thing and how John Carmack, who's like this legend in the video game world and like the designer of doom and all these other like technologies that powered all these video game enhancements like contributed to the found the, to the creation of vr and then they like facebook bought them and like that's been contentious but it continues to kind of get grow and i don't know if you tried a vr headset lately but they are very cool and i've tried i've tried it once my older brother put a vr headset on my head <laughs> a couple of years ago so i'm sure it's gotten way better yeah since i i remember not expecting myself to be as immersed as I was because I kind of thought before I ever put on a VR headset that it's kind of like sunglasses. Like you see it yeah. straightforward, but like out of the side, it's just like, it's still life. It still feels like you're on earth. And I put on the VR headset and I was not correct. It, was, <laughs> it felt like I was, it felt like everything, whether it was a good thing or a dangerous thing was a direct threat or opportunity (laughs) (laughs) right in my face. I was like, Jesus, like this is too good. Like it's really good. And um, it's exciting to think about technologies like that, how good they are right now. And that hopefully we'll, you know, be alive for decades more and then see how things like that pan out. 
Yeah, I think I mean Apple's coming out with one now. Like I think that there some of the design just leaked, and there should be one this this year, early next year from Apple. And like the Oculus is already definitely like cool enough. I remember trying a few years ago and you had to like plug it into a tower to have enough compute. And now it's like just a freestanding headset and two controllers. And the controllers are cool and like make you feel like you have hands in virtual reality. Like it's very cool. Very well done. It's scary to think about. It's almost going off of working out. It's almost discouraging in a sense because I'm thinking, okay, (laughs) what is the point of building a good body in this reality if 20 years from now I can just be in another body in another world <laughs> looking like something else and you know it's that may be an exaggeration at the same time it, it it's it's fascinating and it's it's scary and it can be almost discouraging of like being able to change your reality so quickly because we invest so much into this reality and then you can flick a button and you know have a different wife or have it be in a different location or, you know, whatever it is, have different status and, and wealth and all things like that. That is a very ready player one question, right? Like part of, I think part of that book is like, is a cautionary tale because we all let the real world go to shit because we are living our lives in this like virtual reality. Is there something you read about as a kid that you wanted to turn into a technology yourself or anything you ever dreamed about? bringing into your existence, kind of like the guy who created Oculus. This is another Neil Stevenson. Or even now, yeah. even now reading sci-fi, it's, anything it's another that you want to exist. Neil Stevenson book. Um, it's called The Diamond Age or A Young Girl's Illustrated Primer. And it's basically like w- one of the technologies in there is that there's, imagine an iPad that is like the perfect educational tool and is like deeply immersive and teaches teaches a kid like exactly what they need when they need it in like the most engaging way possible through a game such that like they're in the the characters in the book there's only like two of these ipads in the world and they go to like two different girls um into very different life circumstances and it basically their education is so good that it makes these two like almost superhuman and i think that's such an interesting concept and it's something that i think you know, there's no specific technology there that we don't have. It's just a design problem almost more than a technology problem. I think that's a super interesting one. Yeah, that that does seem pretty interesting. And I guess we'll see what the, what the world holds in the future. Maybe someone will read it and then bring it to life. Yeah, there's next the nexus series is another one those also like read like action movies. Um, but that's basically a whole series of books about in near future about Neuralink. And like what that technology might mean for people and how we might live and fight and love and what like spies with programmable brain hardware are like, like that's pretty awesome. I wanted to get back into the Navalmanac to kind of dissect the the process a little bit because you were able to pare down, you know, like we mentioned at the beginning, thousands, literally thousands of tweets, hundreds of interviews, and, and you put it all into this one resource and you spent uh, I think it was three years and thousands of hours I'm assuming putting all of Naval's or, or what whatever Naval shared publicly into this book and that's an extremely useful thing for society to have someone like that their knowledge pared down into this super accessible book you can read through it you can dog market you don't have to go through all of these different interviews <laughs> so my question is what could someone do in the future to make it easier 
for someone like you to create an almanac of them? Like if, if there's someone now that is a content creator, what could they start thinking about now for, you know, maybe 20 years from now, there's a kid that thinks they're content is super useful. What could content creators do now to make it easier to compile what they're doing? What, what, in a sense, what, what could Naval have done to, to cut your job in half? <laughs> what, what would have made it an easier process for you? Yeah. So more of these things come out, like more of these almanacs of super smart people. Cause I think that would be a great thing. Yeah. I think, um, it's a good question. I think, I mean, just the first answer is just to be prolific, right? Like just put a lot out there, make it honest, make it helpful. One thing that I came across in this book is that Naval's been talking about some of the same ideas for a long time, but you can see his thoughts evolve and you can see his phrasing evolve and you can see new ideas come together. And like each articulation of the idea is like a little bit different. And so one of the things I was able to do with the book is look over, you know, five years that he's been talking about and exploring and evolving an idea and pick the very best instance of that the very best articulation of that idea and pull that out and make that like set that in concrete in the book so that it's easy to find it so that everybody can get access to the best version of that idea and have the best put the best context around it and give them the best chance of grokking that idea and taking it as their own and carrying it forward and applying it to their life if they create a lot i think especially you know the formats will change but um not being afraid to just create and and you know productize yourself and keep that available. The only thing here that I had to ask Naval for was, was a export of his Twitter history because Twitter only shows you the last 3000, but you know, just little, little things like that and, and being available to it. I think there's, there's probably some value to, to a variety of, of interviewers too. And like people with good questions, like bring stuff out of you like this, you know, like I've never thought about this question before, but I think it's an interesting one. And it makes me think just a little bit differently and phrase things just a little bit differently. And like that, uh, when you're, when you're looking at a million words of somebody, you know, and all of their work across all this time and trying to put together, you know, a few hours of their very best insights they've ever had and shared, like having somebody using different angles and different lenses and asking new questions is really, really helpful and interesting. So it sounds like something that could be useful would be almost having a, some sort of flow of, evolutions of ideas where if you were talking about wealth, for instance, you could say, you know, maybe you had a similar quote or blog post on wealth that was in the same area. And each one was more of an evolved thought process than the last. So you could have something on your site that says, Hey, this is my most recent thoughts on this, or this is what I've put the most effort into. Yeah, This was kind of me just throwing some stuff out there and seeing if it stuck and it did. And so I thought about that more and more and more. And this is the most, this is like my highest form of this idea. Yeah. And, and, and being as deliberate as you can about watching thoughts evolve over time, you know, like things that we believed at 20, we may at 30, like understand why we believed that and, and not have been wrong but also have like an evolved version of that thought now at 30. And it's like my past self wasn't, wasn't wrong. It was just like maybe unnuanced or maybe, maybe I, I, it is totally like reasonable and rational. I just have a different belief about a specific subject at, at 20, then at 30, then at 40, right? And like th- those, you know, back to what we were talking about, like adults are supposed to evolve and change and things that are, and that doesn't mean that the previous 
statement or opinion or belief was was wrong. It was just like correct in that context or belonged in that context and a new belief belongs in a new context. And so being thorough about the context of ideas and beliefs, maybe, um, and like talking about things like why this is your stance currently, what would have to change for you to change your mind, like some of those kind of tools of thought and and second levels of how you arrived at this opinion and, and where you think it might go and how strongly held a belief is, right? This is a fundamental core belief. How well informed is it? How tested is it? How well do you understand the other side's like argument or the arguments against it? I think all of those are interesting things that help readers and people who are following along, like understand whether they agree with you, whether they disagree with you, or whether that principle or thought is going to work as well for them as it maybe did for you because everybody's context and, and it's different. Yeah. Context seems like it would be really important for different ideas because you can take, I mean, podcasting is a great example. People get their clips pulled out all the time of these 15, 20 second things. And some people have ulterior motives. Mo- most of it is is positive, like people trying to help and spread information. But sometimes people take things out of context and you have no idea what that person was talking about before or what the segue was or if they were saying, you know, this is what I wouldn't do. And then they say <laughs> something that they wouldn't do. And then like only that clip is uh, yeah. taken out. So yeah, context seems like it's it's super valuable to start thinking about as a creator. How can you kind of label not only the the content that you're making, but also make sure that the context is readily available. Something that I wanted to ask you is, have you ever been embarrassed into making a good decision? Because Naval talks about having being embarrassed into having been embarrassed into starting his first company. And embarrassment seems like it's one of the most powerful emotions because you can sit angry for months and not do anything about it. People do that all the time. They they kind of sit and boil in this anger. And or they, you can be happy, you can be frustrated, and people are willing to go through their days like that. But it seems like embarrassment is special because there's like this shame that you feel that you just like you're like immediately like get off me, like I can't like take this any longer. Is is there anything that you've been shamed into doing or embarrassed into doing that was a positive direction in your life? Yeah, I mean. My buddy, Zach, that interview you listen to, like he embarrasses me into workouts all the time. Uh, and that is, and that is very effective. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, I think when I was, when I was rowing, like I, you know, we had a very well-crafted competitive environment. I think like my coach really understood how to get the maximum effort out of like 15 year old boys. And when you stack rank people, like they want to climb. And when you show them how to climb, like, and how to beat the person in front of them, like they're going to work really hard to do it. And like that worked on me in that context, you know, I I wanted to win and I worked incredibly, incredibly hard to like beat the people I wanted to beat. And, And I think there's a lot of the carrot is pride and the stick is embarrassment in that context, for sure. I I was just watching, uh, the documentary about the bulls, the last dance. Mm-hmm. And Michael Jordan yeah. and a lot of that. And I, I kept thinking like, you know, I know, I know the like stoic principle is ego is the enemy, but I feel like Michael Jordan just over and over again, just like used his own ego against him to make himself win. And like, if there wasn't a personal reason for him to put it all out there, every game, like he would just invent one. He would like invent a personal offense that somebody on the team had like yeah. committed against him and be like, now it's personal. Like 
I'm going all out. Um, yeah. it, it, like over yeah. and over and over and just like put it on his back. And that I think is psychologically hard. And like, you know, he risked embarrassment all the time by playing that way. But I, I think it drastically increased his, his upside. And like, is part of probably what made him a champion is like learning how to use that for good. Yeah. It's, it seems like embarrassment is especially cold in kind of heartless in the way that it affects people. I, I forget what movie it is. It, it was kind of this like mafioso Scarface thing, but more modern. And this guy was a, a huge drug kingpin. And I remember he was having a conversation with his wife and he's like, you know what you can do. I'll, I'll accept a lot of things. Talk kind of like alluding to, you know, infidelity or lying things like that but he was like if you ever embarrass me in public we're done like if you ever do something to embarrass me like that is the last straw above everything else and i was like wow like that's pretty powerful you can see strong strong reactions when people get embarrassed um and and you feel it in yourself right like you you either like work to resolve it or run from it and you're gonna get a strong reaction probably either way and it's just a you know Try to be, be sure you channel it for the right reasons and like use it responsibly. I mean, in a in like a management context or a teaching context or something like that, you could really like scar some people. I think if you abuse that that power or, or use it the wrong way, because it, it's a really you know shame makes you shut down if you don't overcome it. And I think you know a lot of people carry a lot of that, and it's a dangerous game to play once it's out there. It's 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 hard and. I think it has a possibility to maybe create a positive spiral, but it also carries the risk of that negative spiral too. Yeah. Diff- different people can react to yeah. different people have different reactions to the same embarrassing or shameful statement. And I, I grew up getting called fat and I wasn't, I was never like morbidly obese. Like I was going to die, but I was fat enough to be the fat one in the group growing up. And for me, getting called fat was part of that motivation to want to get me to work out and, you know, be someone who's seen as attractive. And eventually baseball came into it. And I thought, okay, if I want to play in college, I need to get in better shape. But for some people, that, that's why I'm kind of like in between on, on fat shaming. Because I'm like, for some people, it's an incredibly powerful tool. If I say something to one of my friends in the locker room or he says something to me like, oh, looking a little flabby there, like kind of like pinches my stomach. I'm like, all right, let's go work out or (laughs) let's go run. But the same person that might like destroy their entire week. Like they may just like think about that forever and never get over it. So I'm still kind of forming my opinion on on that realm of it. Yeah. And I mean, you can't know, you can't know where people are going to come in and you can't, and I don't think one, you know, you don't have to form one opinion. It's, it, you know, you can, you let it sit that it's some people can use it for good and some people can use it for bad. And, you know, anything in the world, you could say the same thing about, right? If you were to spend three years and write another almanac of a very smart, insightful person, let's say, let's say Elon Musk, for example, maybe he wouldn't be your second choice. That's up to you. What did you take or what have you learned at a level of analyzing humans, analyzing a human being's thought over three years? What, what have you learned 
outside of Naval's knowledge specifically, but in like the way that you analyze people's thoughts and compile that into a resource, what are some of those things that you would take with you on the next almanac that you wrote if you were to write one? And what are some things that you would do differently if you were to write the Alon Manac <laughs> or something, the, uh, the, the next thing, what, what would you, what would you do the same from last time? And, and what are some things that you would change up now having gone through the process? Some things were just really hard to figure out because I, you know, I never created a book like this before, you know, a, a book that was entirely made out of pre-existing kind of raw material. I wasn't even sure it was possible or if it was possible, whether it would be good having now done it. I feel like it's a little obvious when you look at it now and, and it's like all the corners are sanded and everything's like polished and stitched and seamed. And, but when the first couple drafts looked rough enough that I was like, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do this the, the way I'm quite envisioning it. I mean, it's a huge weight to just know that that, that end state is there and that it can be that, that good. There's, I would definitely, I, I understand some things about structure and flow of ideas now that I didn't. And I think, just think like, the reason this book is, is resonating with people and uh, I mean, it gets, it gets recommended so much and people appreciate it is like it's, it is one, it's dense and it's easy to, it's like quick to read, but you get a lot out of it. Like, you know, I hear people say I got like a highlight on every page and that is music to my ears. That's exactly what I want to hear. Exactly what we were going for. But I think like I read a lot of biographies and I read a lot of biographies because I want to understand how these people think and what I can learn from them. And when you realize you, like when you read a biography, mostly like, it's just about that person and their life. And it's not a lesson. It's not about how they think. It's not about their principles. It's not about something that you can choose like to take into your own toolkit. And like, that's what this book is. This book is like Naval teaching you how Naval thinks. And like, I try to just mm. get out of the way and give you in his own words, everything that he has to teach you. And I think that there's a lot of people, there's a lot more people that that would be interesting to do for. I think Elon Musk is a, is a very good example. And like, if you ask yourself, I, I, I don't ask myself the question of like, what book do I want to write next? Or like, who do I want to study next? I ask the question of like, who do I want to help millions of people learn to think like? It, like now mm -hmm. that I know what this book feels like to put out in the world, and now that I know what the final version is, that's what I realized that I've done is I've helped people think like Naval. And so if you want to think like Naval, this is, this is the best resource for it. If, you, if I want to help a million more people learn to think like somebody, like, I think Elon Musk is an awesome choice. He's pulled the future into the present in four mm -hmm. different ways that are, you can love him or hate him for a thousand different reasons and, and they're valid, but like, you can't deny the impact on humanity that he has had and, and will have. He's only like, I don't think he's even 50. That's insane. A lot of people associate Elon Musk with first principles because it, it, it seems like he's so good at thinking about problems and then kind of eliminating other people's depictions of them or how other people have solved them in the past and then saying, you know, can we do this according to the laws of physics? And if we can, then why are we not trying to do it this way? If it's more cost effective, if it's better, if it's, and even something as simple as podcasting, you can apply that to like podcasting. The only thing you need for a podcast is audio and you need to upload it into a server that will distribute it. And so that has taken the form of people sitting on couches and having two cameras and a wide angle and kind of like the prototypical podcast setup, which I've, I've done myself when I have more in-person podcasts. People are sitting on the, the couches 
behind me, but sometimes I think about like what if, if no one ever recorded a podcast before, how would I, and I've never watched a podcast, never listened to a podcast. How would I have that conversation? Like what is the most effective way to translate what that person's trying to say into this medium of audio and video? And Elon Musk has certainly affected my thinking with something as, you know, simple as, as podcasting when he's, you know, a hundred light years ahead of me thinking about how to get to Mars and launch rockets. I'm like, Oh, how can I, you know, apply first principles to podcast? But like, <laughs> it's kind of, you can really apply it to anything. So he, I definitely think he would be a, a great person. I mean, that's, what's awesome. That's what's awesome about him is like, he, no matter what you're doing, he's an inspiration for you to do it better and faster. At least that's what a lot of people, I think, follow him for. He, he's an example for me of how much extra energy I put into deadlines sometimes that are unnecessary. Like deadlines seem so black and white where if you hit it, it'll be a success. And if you miss it, it'll be a failure. But he's proven time and time again that if you deliver on something close to what you said you were going to deliver, or at least people can connect the dots and see a path to what you said you could deliver, then people are willing to accept you missing a deadline or three because you said, <laughs> I'm going to do this in a year and it took you four. People are willing to... Deadlines aren't as much of a hard predictor of success to other people as they seem to ourselves. And so sometimes I remind myself like, oh, like, you know, I need to get this podcast out tomorrow. And but it's not going to be as good because I'm not done editing it and I still have to do all this other stuff for my job. And I'm like, what if, like, what if I do it on Thursday instead of Wednesday? Like I put out a better podcast a day later, you know, I think people are going to be willing to accept that. Yeah. It's a good, I mean, especially when that podcast is going to live on for, for years, right? Like what's, what's one day funny. The other thing that I think Elon Musk is like semi-famous for is like pushing schedules and you know, it's, it's, ironic in the context of like he misses all the deadlines, but also he makes anybody go faster than anybody ever thought mm -hmm. they could. Right. And so they were like, you know, the boring company story or whatever. That's like, we, we think we can start digging next month. You know, once we figure the, the permitting process out and once we get the drill and he's like, how about you start digging in an hour and you see how big you can get the hole by Sunday night, like ready, go. Yeah. That was when he basically told everyone uh, to go is, in the parking lot. Right. He, they went outside yeah, and yeah, he's like, start moving cars. Oh, yeah. Here's a shovel. There you go. Screw the deadlines or s screw what you think is possible. Yeah. yeah. Which, which is, you know, he's done a number of things that were like considered that they were like not against the laws of physics, but like considered impossible timeline wise and schedule wise and complexity wise by the current pace of industry. And, and it's that combination of like instinct for speed and like getting started and the first principles piece of like, if it's not against the laws of physics, then I'm trying it, right? Something that I promised we would get into is, is sandwiches. Oh, yes. What do you find fascinating about sandwiches? <laughs> you post about them a lot. And I would like to know what it is that, that sparks your interest in the, the sandwich. I just love a good sandwich. I mean, I can give you the like sandwiches, like, you know, there's sandwiches in every culture and like... You know, you can get a sandwich at a steakhouse or a sandwich at a, you know, food cart. And like, there's a million different versions of it and every sandwich is unique. But like, I just fucking love a good sandwich. It's just a, a meal in your hand and you got 
salt, fat, acid, heat, all the different like contrasts, textures and flavors. What makes a good sandwich? What, what are the defining characteristics of a good sandwich to you? Those are the things you need. You need contrast um, across flavor and contrast across texture. And if you can get temperature, I, te- I personally think that's ideal as well. But, you know, the, there's, there's exceptions to be had there. But if you get like all the great sandwiches, you tend to see, you see, you see contrast, you know, you see a fat and an acid or you see like a, a creamy mozzarella and like crunchy lettuce. Like it's, it's just about the contrast and like getting more, hitting like all the flavor, you know, all the parts of your tongue in one so bite. So there is a yin and a yang to the art of sandwich making. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there a, a particular type of sandwich that's your favorite? I'm partial to like a classic Italian. Like if I could only eat one ever again, like that would that would be it. But I really have not met many sandwiches that I wasn't extremely happy to eat. Yeah, I love sandwiches. My My taste in sandwiches has sadly devolved over the years because I haven't made as many. So I'll, I'll eat a, a peanut butter and jelly or something and I'll be like, oh, this is, you know, a great sandwich to me, but I, I need to get back into the the sandwich game. Peanut peanut butter and jellies are are great, even just peanut butter. But I've been uh out of the sandwich game for some time now and you are inspiring me to get back into my love of sandwiches. Yeah. I mean if if my Twitter thread can't get you my Twitter thread of my sandwiches eaten can't get you motivated and and back in the kitchen you know it's not it's not complicated like i believe you can do it and and you'll be happy you did i had a a couple questions as we end off that may be too deep but we'll see <laughs> how, how if you gotta ask they're too deep i'm uh, <laughs> yeah they're, too, they're they're way too deep and we'll get into it anyway how has your view of love evolved over the past few years and it could be whatever that means to you. It could be romantic love. It could be just friends on a connected level. But what are the, what are the biggest ways in which your view of love has, has changed over the years? I think at some point you graduate from thinking about love as like just a, you know, what makes me happy personally into like, I'm now like building a family. You are like you're saying you're now building I'm, yeah, this is a thing that happened over the past, somewhere in the past few years, like your first, mm-hmm. but I think in general, like your first relationships, are you figuring out like what works for you as a person? But eventually, you know, the way I summarize this, you know, to, to my friends is like, you don't get to choose your mother, but you get to choose your son's mother. And I think that that's it's like, good one. that is definitely like a phase shift that happens as, as you um, just kind of change context, right? And like, learn to think about relationships a little bit differently. Yeah, I think uh, for me, my th- the way that I view love has changed with the way that I view cool because I'm always going to gravitate towards people that I think are cool and what that means to me changes in different contexts, whether it's, you know, someone who, like, like when you're in college, you, you want that like free spirited girl who you're like, Oh, like, you know, she doesn't give a fuck about anything. And like, she's so cool. And like, she's into all these different things. And like, she's kind of like a free spirit. And I think a lot of people are kind of like that in college and then you get older. And for me, at least I've seen a lot, uh, I've thought more about the, the practicalities 
of love on a day-by-day basis. Like, how is this person treating me? How am I treating them? What are, what's the small things, you know, as cliche as that is, like, what, it, what are the things that we're doing to each other that are either, you know, making our life better together or making our life worse? And yeah. Wait, but why has this awesome article that's like, most of life is just like a boring Tuesday is what he calls it. So like, you, you know, your relationship isn't defined by your best moments or your worst moments. It's, it is mostly like your boring Tuesdays. So like, how does it feel on a boring Tuesday? How does it feel on a boring Tuesday? That applies to relationships. And it also seems like it applies to careers too, because I'm sure I've definitely had some people who have wanted to get into podcasting and kind of like trying to pick my brains on what it takes to start a podcast. And a lot of the things that I find fascinating about doing the research and doing the editing and whatever these seemingly menial tasks are, I've managed to find a way to make them exciting or maybe they're naturally exciting to me. Whereas someone else is like, oh no, I just want to like record the conversation and kind of, you know, pass that off to someone else. So I definitely feel like most of what I'm doing with podcasting is, is, so boring to watch. It, it's literally the most boring thing ever. I'm sitting at a computer <laughs> looking at audio waves and I'm trying to to edit them and uploading them and splicing the content for social media. But like in my mindset, I'm like, this is the most exciting thing ever. Like I can't wait to release all this this content. This is this is good shit. So applying to love, I can see that kind of crossover where maybe it looks boring. You're sitting with someone on the couch. You're not saying anything to each other. Maybe one person's reading and the other one is talking on the phone or whatever, but it just works for whatever reason. The last thing I wanted to ask you is if there was someone who had read everything you ever wrote, listened to every podcast you ever recorded, read all the books you read, consumed all the same content as you, if that person existed... What is there in your life that's influenced you that that person wouldn't see? So in other words, the hidden influence that drives you. It, maybe it's not in, in the content. Maybe it's not in, in the things that you've consumed. But it's something there that in the background is, has been a source of action or inspiration throughout your life. That's a very good question. I think that would just be like some of like the culture of my family and like how I was raised and my parents values. I think that's like, it's one of those things that's like, it's just kind of feels like water. Like it's just in all of us, our own version of that. And it comes out in ways that, you know, it it partly defines who we are, but we rarely like articulate what those things are or like talk about them specifically as stuff that we've learned. Cause it's just like in us for as long as we can remember. I think that those are always like interesting questions and things to think about. And some of my favorite conversations with people is like, you know, what, what were like the norms in your house or the habits in your house? Or like, what are the things that you, you know, you did at your family that like you loved or hated and you'll definitely do or not do, you know, with your kids? Yeah. There's definitely a lot of things that I haven't put deep thought into that over quarantine and I was in solo quarantine for a bit. So naturally your thoughts start to wander to whatever. And a lot of that is kind of these childhood experiences. So I'm I'm slowly starting to realize how much my parents have shaped me in a way that is responsible for better or worse, the outcomes, some of the outcomes that I'm experiencing now. So I'm there with you in terms of 
analyzing that stuff. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I like that one. I stole it from uh, speaking, going all the way back to uh, unoriginal ideas. I think it might have been Tyler Cowan. I don't know if you've listened to his podcast, Conversations with Tyler. Uh-huh. He has the blog Marginal Revolutions. I, I keep a running list of all these podcast questions that I find interesting. So it's kind of just like this clusterfuck on my phone of going back <laughs> two and a half years. And yeah, I guess that's kind of like that's a, a good, good file example. to have. Like that makes for good dinners. That makes for good. Yeah. What makes me uh, keep that or not what makes me keep that list, but something I think about is like, I'm always scared of someone putting me on the spot for a podcast for some reason. Like I've had a recurring dream where someone's like, oh my God, like we don't have a host for this podcast. Is, can someone here like host it? And I'm just like, yeah, I got this thing on my phone. Like <laughs> I got a list of all these questions that apply in a general manner to different people. <laughs> I can uh, ask them right here. Is there a doctor and a podcast host on this plane, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need someone to uh, interview the man who is having a heart attack to <laughs> get his view on suffering. But yeah, th- thanks again for for taking the time to to hop on the the podcast. I, I really appreciate it, and your work has has influenced me, and I'm going to steal things from Navalmanac. I'm going to steal things from the Evergreen blog, from the other podcasts you've been on and, and give credit. And yeah, I I appreciate what you do. And, and you're definitely uh, making me think more like Naval with the Navalmanac and also like yourself with the the blogs and podcasts that you have, have been a guest on. So I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Zach. Honestly, it means a lot. I appreciate it. And, and you know, Hearing that it's helpful is fuel to keep going. So I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Auxoro podcast. If this show has moved and inspired you in some small way, we would appreciate you taking the time to send this show to someone else you care about. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at at and tune into our channel on YouTube by searching Oxoro for the video versions of these conversations. See you guys next time, motherfuckers!